there's something about a pasty, there's something about a pasty, and so on it goes, yes. Welcome to Local Fairy Tales. I'm your narrator, Nora Vetter. What is a local fairy tale? It's the story of a fair, F-A-R-E, that can only be found in certain regions, states, cities, and so on. Each tale will be told with the help of the voices that know it well. Historians, creators, servers, festival organizers, superfans, etc. Today's featured fair is the Pasty. The Cornish Pasty is a local fair that went global, but somehow remains uniquely regional in how it was adopted and adapted into each community it arrived in. You just heard David Oates, a local historian from Camborne in Cornwall, England, sing a bit of the song, There's Something About a Pasty. Now, let's meet the rest of our pasty tale tellers. My name is Nick Davey, owner of the Orange Spot Bakery in Glenelg, South Australia. Jean Ellis. I live in Eagle Harbor, Michigan. I have been inducted into the Cornish Gorsed and therefore am a bard. So my bardic name is Carnuis Gankiwana, which basically means Cornish woman of the Kiwana. Glyn Hughes from Derbyshire, which is in the hills of the northern part of England. And I'm the editor of uh, the Foods of England. Mike Kiernan, based in Cornwall in the southwest part of the United Kingdom and I'm researching the Cornish diaspora around the globe. David Oates, I see myself as a bit of a local historian and I'm in Camborne, which is in Cornwall. The Pasty Guy, I write Pasty Reviews online for all the Pasty places across America so far. I'm from the Thumb of Michigan, though I currently live on the west side of the state. Marilyn Philby, treasurer as well as team leader for the Minter National Trust, and I'm part of the History Centre based in Minter. Leah Polzine, Executive Director of Main Street Calumet, Michigan. And we host an annual event called Main Street Calumet Passing Fest. Deborah Reeve, Redruth Town Councillor in a town called Redruth in Cornwall in England. I'm Lynn Sperling from the Kernowick Lewenda Cornish Festival, and you're listening. You're listening to the listening to the local the local fairy tale. The local fairy tale of the pasty. Fairy tale of the pasty. Tale of of the pasty. I'm Jean Ellis, and you're listening to the local fairy tale of the pasty. As somebody said, it rhymes with nasty, and I guess that's true. It is not a pasty. <laughs> I was a little surprised at that one <laughs> because, you know, when you grow up, that's what the word means, and, and it just is. But no, it's, it's a pasty. If we're going to talk about pasties, that's something you have to talk about. So people, when they see the word pasty, P-A-S-T-Y, if you're not a Uber, we know you're not a Uber because you call it a pasty. And if you're not familiar, a pasty is kind of like a nipple covering on a dancer. and so. If you ever come to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, don't go into a restaurant and order pasties, order pasties. That's a little piece of advice. We say pasty. <laughs> I don't know if that's the Australian way, but it to us is the pasty. 
Real de Monte in Hidalgo in Mexico, they call it paste and it's spelled P-A-S-T-E, but they put the accent on the E at the end. But what we've come to talk about is the pasty, the great, great pasty. A pasty is a complete meal. Yes, well, it's a it's a, a fearsome beast, really, because uh, it's difficult to describe it without having a picture of it. Okay, so a pasty is kind of a meat and vegetable hand pie so to speak. Maybe that's a good visual descriptor. I guess it kind of looks like a calzone, just because you have a crust or something in it. What a pasty is, is some food stuff, like meat and things, wrapped in pastry, just flour paste, rolled out flat, wrapped in that, and then baked. So you get a hard crust on the outside, and you get sort of deliciousness in the inside. A traditional pasty, by definition, has only white root vegetables in it. There are basic ingredients, which is potato, onion, swede, which is sometimes called a turnip. It's, I'm trying to think what you'd call it. It's kind of like like a rutabaga. It's got to have Sweden turnip in it. Now, this is confusing to even us in the, in Cornwall in the UK, because um, a swede is a yellow fleshed vegetable. And it's not a white turnip. In Cornwall, it's known as the turnip. Perhaps sometimes yellow turnip or the Swedish turnip. And in North America, the USA, it's known as the rutabaga. Also, rutabaga or turnip. And, and I think that we've had a little debate um, with different people about what they call a turnip and what is maybe what we call a rutabaga or vice versa, you know, between different households and even I'm sure between Cornwall and here, um, you know, what we put a rutabaga in, I think that that's what they use, but maybe some people call it a Swede or some people call it, you know, there, there's some terminology there that I'm not quite confident that we're using the same vegetable, but I think we turn it to Swede, chopped up. And then obviously you, you have the big discussion of whether you dice or you, um, Great, your vegetables, but a traditional pasty would be diced, so very finely diced vegetables. The pasty that I'm familiar with, the vegetables are sliced, but not long slices. They're like sort of like fried potato slices. Does that make sense? Like raw fries or something like that. Only they're they're a little bit smaller, but they are sliced, not diced, and and you will get into wars about that kind of thing with people because. My mother-in-law supposedly used vegetables that were chipped with a spoon. And I cannot imagine how you would do that. But her son always said that that's what she did. I think I like more of the pasties that, are, that have their ingredients sliced in it. Um, that's what I was going to say. But I mean, technically, like I said, it shouldn't really matter if it's sliced or diced or, or however it's mixed up, as long as the ingredients are in there, as long as you're getting something in every bite. Obviously, if you're going to mix it, it's easier. And I don't know why it would really make a huge difference, but uh, there are people who would probably, World War III would be mild compared to what they would do. <laughs> so. And then you would have either minced or diced steak. Most importantly, it must contain cubed beef, not minced beef. Well, this is what the ingredients for my mother's pasty recipe were. One and a half pounds of Sirloin steak or flank steak cut into three-eighth-inch pieces. Meat, chunks of meat. The Cornish like to use flank steak for the meat. It has sliced meat 
in it. Uh, usually the cheapest cut you could possibly find. Traditionally, it's a combination of red meat, usually beef, but it could be um, mutton or sheep meat of some sort. Well, this is highly debatable, actually, even that right there. Meat, let's say meat. It could be beef, it could be pork, it could be both. It could be shredded, it could be sliced, it could be cubed. It could be, everybody has their own way that they want to do it. Mum always used um, mince meat. But I went and stayed with my auntie, Doreen, at one stage, when I was a young girl. She's mum's sister. And um, she actually made it with lamb, but I didn't like it as much. So I think I was used to the mincemeat. But there will be meat. And lots of pepper and salt and general seasoning. And a particular type of pastry is wrapped around it. And the pastry is made with a light flake. Then there's the whole debate about the pastry. Is it too flaky? Is it too short? Is it all of these different things? You know, um, oh, I like the pastry from this baker's because they make it this way. And I like the pastry from that baker's because they make it that way. And everybody's got their own opinion. And there's endless competitions about who has the best one. In our family, we always make a basically a pie crust, unsweetened, could be with butter, could be with shortening, could be with lard, depending on uh, which member of my family. The way they do it in Cornwall is very distinctive. All the ingredients are wrapped, are mixed up together raw, they're uncooked. And you layer this. I think I was always told to do the potatoes first, and then the meat, and then the rutabaga, and then the onion, because then the flavour goes through. Which is sealed, and there's a very great skill to doing the sealing. And uh, that's sort of turned all around one egg, uh, which is called the crimp. I have a mother-in-law who is fabulous at making pasties. They make the pastry from scratch, and yes, she's very good at crimping. My husband has learned to crimp from his mother as well. I am hopeless, absolutely hopeless. <laughs> but that's okay. I have somebody, I can do a pasty roll. <laughs> <laughs> the, the trick is in in making the crimp you've got to turn the edge of it all around and that's something that's passed down from mother to daughter and so on and i've not quite mastered that yet i doubt that i will now at 76. Uh, it's just it's the wrist action and it's where you've got to get your thumbs and i oh, like it's beyond me <laughs> there's a very great skill to doing the ceiling it's no good at home just crimping the edges it's rolled round by hand and sealed in a special way that I cannot understand. I've made them myself. And yes, the crimping part is a little bit difficult because sometimes I don't stick together. Um, I used to put milk, I think, um, put a bit of milk on both edges and that helped them to stick. And it, it, yeah, it took an art. Like mum, mum was really good. Mum was a good cook though. Um, I'm not as good as she is or she was. So sometimes they didn't stick and, you know, when they cooked, oh, they come apart, but didn't matter, they still tasted beautiful. Crimping is a thing that is uh, traditionally given to a Cornish pasty, but that's been um, adulterated over the years quite a bit. And they put the crust on the top. I think it's an Australian thing because our crimp is across the top of the pasty. So um, I believe in Cornwall it might be around the side, but I'm, I'm unsure because I haven't visited. And it's also the thing that causes the most controversy because whereabouts you crimp the pasty is really important. So you can either fold the paste right over and crimp it along the side, 
or you can bring the pasty up so it meets in the middle and then you can crimp it across the top. There's always an argument about which is the right way. Every Cornish person and most of the people that live in Cornwall will have an opinion about which is the right thing to do. I noticed, um, I actually did some Googling and I noticed that the Michigan pasties had them on the side, had the crimp on the side. We are side crimpers in our family and then, um, you know, the table butter inside and pokes and fork holes in the top. That's how we roll. At Pasty Fest, we see a variety of shapes of pasty as well. So we do have some folks who make the pasties rounder, and they actually tuck their dough under, all the way under. Um, so they're kind of a really round pasty, or the you know the traditional shape that that you we would typically think of. Where in our household we would take a pie shell a pie pan and use that to trace around it that's the, the shape of dough that we would make and then fill it with filling fold it in half and crimp the edge so we get a kind of a half of a pie pan size kind of pasty interestingly in mexico they've solved the issue because they crimp their meat pasties along the side and they crimp their bean so vegetarian pasties across the top so you can tell which is which we stick to what is a traditional pasty in australia and and around the world for that matter where it's a just plain folded over pasty no no crimp i'm sure people do it differently it's like anything else you you do make adjustments some adjustments are good i happen to think that carrots are an abomination but <laughs> Some people put a carrot, which I think is awful, but a lot of people really like that. Carrot, no, not never. And I, I have quite a few on, online discussions with friends in Michigan about that because, of course, it's become, over the, the decades, it's become accepted there, um, but it wouldn't be accepted in, in Cornwall in any way, shape, or form. Some people put carrot. I don't think carrots are appropriate. Um, and there's great contention as to whether or not pumpkin is put into it or not. I think what upset me the most was on the two occasions when I came to the States to visit the Cornish communities and was looking forward greatly to the pasties that they had on offer there, and uh, I'm afraid to say that the Scandinavian influence there, and I love the Scandinavians greatly, had introduced things like peas and sweet corn and carrots into the pasties. And uh, it would be thrown away here in Cornwall if it had that sort of stuff in it. Never, ever put peas in it. About four years ago, we came runner-up. And the one that won it um, had broccoli and capsicum in a, in a traditional pasty. Now, I didn't say anything. I, I'm a firm believer. Judge's decision is final. Let them let do it. But one of the judges was new. Uh, it was a, a young lady, just finished her apprenticeship, and she thought the thing looked really great with this green broccoli in there and the capsicum. And the judges were going to do a, a recount. I said, no, you can't. You, you can't do that. That judge has made their decision on it. Let it stand. And that would just make it aware next year that it is predominantly root vegetables. That's all that is in a traditional parsley. But they had a lot of complaints about that, a hell of a lot. And then they bake it very slowly. And the result is that all the foods inside, they cook inside the sealed pastry. And that keeps all the flavour in together. And it does produce a spectacularly delicious flavour. And with a beautiful, beautiful, tasty, crunchy, all crunchy on the outside, soft, flaky crust. It's a, a very convenient meal to carry around with you. and. Uh... 
take for a picnic or for your lunch when you go to work or whatever? Yeah, personally, I try and eat all of them with my hand uh, just because, you know, that's what kind of what they're made for. So, and, you know, if you can't eat them with your hand, then I kind of, you know, maybe half a point downgrade or something like that. Um, <laughs> and you don't ever eat a pasty sideways like a piece of sweet corn anyway. You eat it from end to end. You don't want to eat like the side of it kind of thing. I mean, either end is really acceptable. You eat your pasty out of the bag that they give it to you in from the bakers and you don't have anything else with it and that's what it is. You just appreciated the pasty for what it was. It didn't need any accompaniment at all. What is, I think is wrong, it's grossly wrong, immoral and perverted and quite possibly, well, it should be illegal, is if a pasty is served like as a meal, you know, on a plate with veg and, and fries and things. No, no, and gravy poured over it and things. No, that would be wrong. That would be entirely wrong. A pasty is a, it's a takeaway food. It's a snack food and eat with your hand if you talk to somebody about what is a pure cornish pasty you just eat it as is and i love them especially with homemade tomato sauce they're delicious yeah it does get served with sauce but i'd say 80 percent of the product i sell has no sauce with it it's just a plain product yeah there's a there's a discussion there's i mean i don't get into it as much because i review them and i always you know have to review them by themselves uh, otherwise, once you put in uh, condiments and that kind of thing, I think that kind of affects, I don't know, the integrity of it, you could say. I'm entirely comfortable with sauces of all types. I have no problem with that at all. Wow, because I just need as many extra calories as possible, apparently. I put butter on my pasty, which sounds insane, but I do love butter on a pasty and then maybe half with ketchup and butter. So um, that is how I do it personally. Um, what we see at Pasty Fest is usually, uh, again, butter or ketchup or just plain. But we have heard of certainly gravy. I've never seen that in, in my neck of the woods here. Um, and also there is something apparently called Pasty Sauce, I think. And I have no idea what that is. Another thing I've heard is chow chow. If you've ever heard of chow chow, it is a condiment like um, a pickled vegetable, mustardy pickled vegetable mix. And people will eat that with a pasty as well. Which I, I've never done that, but that actually I think could be really awesome. I, I could I could see the the benefit of that, like where you have the ketchup, you have some acidity, that little bit of vinegar, a little bit of sweet with the meat and the richness of the meat and the pasty crust. So I could see how, how chow chow could be really tasty with that too. The UP uh, prefer ketchup and then the lower peninsula prefers gravy. Um, it's kind of a sore subject for some people, but yeah. You can't have gravy on a pasty. <laughs> you can't have ketchup, but if you were in Cornwall, they would be somewhat aghast at, well, the gravy would just be beyond the pale, but we usually serve coleslaw or chow chow with it or something along that line. They don't do that. As far as they're concerned, this is a full meal. I think you get some little, <laughs> if you ask for ketchup, and if they know you're American, they do give you <laughs> ketchup with it, but you can kind of feel like, oh, maybe I better not. <laughs> I'll just get a quick advert in. Uh, the local brand here, while we talk about the foods of England, um, you might, for instance, like uh, this product, Worcester sauce, which I'm sure you're uh, familiar with, but you've never asked for Worcester sauce 
uh, in where I live in the Peak District. You, in fact, if you're going to our local pub and uh, you want a Bloody Mary, you know the uh, tomato cocktail, which normally has Worcester sauce in it, they, you will not get Worcester sauce. Absolutely not. Round here, uh, we have a different sauce called Henderson's, which is um, it's quite spicy, quite hot. Uh, not as hot as um, the sort of uh, Texas type, you know, burning pepper sauces, but it's quite a spicy, hot thing. And so that that would go very nicely on your pasty. Some Henderson's relish. So there, because I try all places, there have been some bad ones where I have used whatever they've given me just so, you know, I could finish what I was eating. <laughs> Sometimes a controversial item of fare to eat but perhaps the world's greatest and most tasty object you can ever get your mouth into. I'm Glyn Hughes, and you're listening to the local fairy tale of the pasty. We can find references in pasties to old cookery goots going back to the 1200s, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Turns up in Shakespeare quite a lot. And all those knights in armour, they always, they always ate pasties. That was a great thing for them. But very likely, can't be quite sure, because one of the problems about food history is foods that are ordinary and everyday and normal, nobody bothers to write down what they are. So it's always a bit of guesswork. But we think that the ancient pasties, the sort that Shakespeare and people were talking about, were a big solid hunk of meat, solid piece of meat wrapped in pastry. What in uh, Britain and in North America we would call beef wellington. Big piece of meat and spices and things in pastry. And we suspect that um, there might have been a, some sort of Tudor dish which involved wrapping some vegetables in pastry and that sort of survived here, but there's no real evidence to back that up. Essentially, the pasty was created for the mining industry Miners that went underground to do their work had to take something with them for their sustenance. So they would be made lunch to take with them. And a pasty was the ultimate thing that you would take with you down the mine. They needed something to eat that was going to be fairly easy, substantial, but also very filling because it was extremely hard work, very manual labour that um, yeah, would have been extraordinarily tiring. And so to give them something that would sustain them throughout the day, a very long work days, the pasta just fit the bill incredibly well. You had the pastry, which gave that bit of carbohydrate, I suppose, and that, that bit of energy. Um, you had all the goodness of the vegetables and all the meat that was included in that. So it was quite easy to actually uh, to eat. The pasties we are talking about are Cornish pasties. Cornwall is a little bit the bottom left-hand side of England. If you look at the map, there's a bit that sticks out. It's a peninsula that sticks out there, and that is the Cornish Peninsula. Cornwall is highly independent. It's legally only a county. It's not legally a separate state. It's legally just a county of England, but it has its own language, Kurno, and it's very, very fiercely independent. It's got its own flag, and there is a movement for completely separate Cornwall from the rest of England, which may not well happen. Historically, because it's right on the end there, it never got invaded by the French and the Dutch and all the other people who invaded England over the years. So it just got left and it just stayed Celtic and ancient. And it is still a very ancient and mysterious place. And it's particularly famous for pasties. Mining was the main source of employment for the area for 
a really long time. If you go back to the early 1800s, Redruth was known as the richest town in the world. It, it was really the, the centre of the Cornish mining industry. And uh, the, the Cornish mining field was at one time uh, the most important and the largest mining field in the world. And at one stage we had um, the deepest mine shaft in the world. Another thing Cornwall is very famous for is tin mining. They have these extraordinary mines, extraordinary mines that go down deep, deep, deep underground and far out under the sea uh, where they mine the tin and have done for centuries. In fact, little interesting aside, Cornwall used to be astonishingly important to Europe because to make bronze, you need tin. You need copper and tin. And copper occurs all over the place, but tin comes from Cornwall. So that made Cornwall and England quite rich. They mainly mined for tin, but they also mined for things like copper. And then there were other smaller, I mean, we're not talking silver and gold here, but you know, the metals that were at the time extremely valuable. So Redruth was a really, really prosperous place. As mining became less profitable here and it's becoming more profitable in other places, clearly they, they move around. Then I think somewhere in the 1800s, it began to taper off and they started looking for different places to emigrate to. So they did all over the place. Uh, Michigan, certainly the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, especially with the copper mines and iron mines um, attracted a lot of them. If you're out of work here in Cornwall, um, you had no benefits, so you had to decide what to do. And in many cases, that was to leave. And uh, I think at one stage, um, up to 15% of the population left in about 10 years because there was no work whatsoever and went all over the world. Um, I have family in South Africa. I have family in the States, um, in Montana, in Butte, Montana. I have family in Canada. I have family in South Australia, all coming from those far off days when there was no work and, and off they went. And most of them, I'm pleased to say, prospered when they went to those places. But also a lot of miners were recruited from Cornwall itself. It's amazing how much travel people did. Like they had agents. So agents would go to London or they'd come from London and they would recruit um, miners and the Cornish miners were the best hard rock miners in the world at that time and a lot of the mines were petering out in Cornwall they were finding it hard to make ends meet so it actually came at the right time for them as well but it would have taken a lot of courage for them to up stakes and come to another country. And miners from Redruth went all over the world. They went all over the world to share their expertise which is why you've got these fascinating little enclaves of Cornishness in these places all over the world so in Australia and South Africa and America and Mexico and and they, they just went they went everywhere to help share the, the knowledge really of, of mining. South Australia was founded in uh, 1836 I think it was uh, and there's records of pasties being sold in the 1840s in the main street of Adelaide where I live so you know they, they started very early very very early. I want to talked about an unusual country the Cornish went to, Mexico. And way back in 1823, 200 years ago, shortly after Mexico gained independence from the Spanish, their colonial occupiers, the silver mines in Mexico were left in a terribly trashed condition. 
by the departing colonialists and the Cornish miners had the technology and the means to revive those mines and produce revenue for the new emergent Mexican government. And the miners from Red Roof travelled out to Mexico in 1824, had an amazing two-year journey, took all their machinery by boat to Veracruz on the Gulf of Mexico, where they had to unload all of the machinery. There were no roads built, so they had to build the roads as they went built the roads up into the mountains of Real de Monte, took all the machinery and, and all their miners. Um, an awful lot of miners died along the way. An awful lot of Mexicans died along the way because it was a really hazardous journey, uh, not just because of the physicality of what they were doing, but there were things like the mosquitoes and the, the, the diseases that the, the Cornish were susceptible to because they didn't have those things back here. Um, but there were lots of things that happened along the way. And then they finally get there. They set up home, essentially. And of course, they bring the pasties with them. I think you'll find that one of the cultural ob objects, as it were, they took with them to these new countries was the Cornish pasty. And the pasty is now available in all of these amazing little places all over the world because the Cornish miners took it there. Some time ago, I was asked to do a history of the pasty and all I could think of was, wouldn't that be the dullest thing in the world to look at a whole bunch of dates and so on. So what I started out with, if I can remember this, a long time ago in a far distant land, for work or for travel, no food was at hand. No way to keep meat when it came off the hook. A casing was needed. That's all that it took. And then it goes on. And I think the close to the last stanza says, the miners brought their shovels when they started their new lives. But the pasty that came with them was the gift of Cornish wives. And I think too, from the home side of things, because there was no refrigeration and um, all the cooking was done obviously on wood fires and, and ovens and things that have wood burners, the pasty was something that was, was quite achievable for the, the women of the family. And I'm Sorry to typecast there, but that's just the way, of course, it was in those days. It was a meal that they could actually make and pre-prepare and then actually manage to keep for several days. But it was certainly a convenience meal for miners and they could take it with them in their bag or in their in their pocket and go underground and so on. Um, and it was it was in a convenient form, pre-packaged, so to speak. So all you had to do was to take it out and eat it. So they used to eat them underground so they didn't have to come because they, they were they were feet like literally fathoms underground a lot of you know it would have taken them too long to get up and have their break or their crib um so they used to have take their pasties with them and eat them underground and remember they would often it would take them often two hours or more to walk the length of the mine under the sea to get to where the tin was so they would carry these pasties with them a freshly cooked pasty will stay hot for a really really long time because it's like a little oven in itself. You've enclosed it in this pastry case. And once you've cooked it, if you buy one straight from the bakers, you can't eat it because it's too hot. Because it's, it's so hot, it's so hot. I, I want to eat it and it's too hot. They stay hot for a remarkably long time. They're really good at staying hot. When they come out of the oven, of course, as with most things like that, if you 
cut into them straight away. The inside temperature is similar to the surface temperature of the sun and burns the roof of your mouth off. It takes a lot of cutting up vegetables and meat and making the crust and all the rest of it. Um, so, you know, I, I would say, well, it would take me about close to an hour to put together pasties for, for four or five people, which is what the recipe I have is. And then you have to cook them. So if they were leaving to go to work at 7.30 in the morning, their wives were getting up pretty darn early. Mum always used to tell me that the traditional way that the miners made them, or the miners' wives made them, is that they put savoury one end and they put sweet on the other. They then developed, and once again, I'm not sure of the traditions, the oggy. So, of course, that is the pasty that has the savoury at one end and the sweet in the other. So it is a, a meal all in one. The other thing is a repeated story that they also used to make double-ended pasties with meat at one end and fruit at the other. So you've got your, your main meal and your dessert all in one pasty. But this is just rubbish because the whole bloody point of Cornish pasties is that they're cooked in this sealed sort of casing. So all the flavours mix together. And you really do not want, I don't know, beef and prunes or whatever mixing together like that. So double-ended pasties just don't work. But that's the, that is the repeated story. Uh, thank you. That's all. And like, <laughs> have I gone on enough? There's a lot of dispute about that. Um as to whether it's a, a truism or not. I've played around with it a few times and I, I really don't see how it could come about. Um, there's there's no, no fact anywhere that points to this. It, it just says that this is what they did. It, they seem to think that maybe they were given two separate pasties. One had fruit and one had the meat and veggies in it. Now you can reheat them, but again, I... And you can eat them cold, too. I mean, there's no question about that. So maybe that was what they were doing. Here in Cornwall, and certainly I think in Michigan as well, they would use the candles that they had on their helmets to show light to heat the pasture. They'd put it on a, a shovel or something like that and put the candle underneath and heat it up at the time that they wanted to. But definitely it was easy to carry down in what, what they called a lunch pail. And the story, was, one story was that they would put tea in a um, the bottom of it, which would be obviously watertight, and then the pasty on top of it so that they would keep each other kind of warm. I don't know if that's true or not either. Uh, the, the lunch buckets kind of look as if they would do that, but uh, it, uh, it seems like a better story than the shovel. <laughs> I don't know. Absolutely entirely believable. Absolutely entirely believable. I can remember when being told by an old railwayman uh, on the old steam trains, uh, they used to cook their food on the shovels. They'd put you know, eggs and things um, on the shovel, uh, the coal shovel, and hold it inside the furnace for a few minutes to cook. And uh, the railway company got angry. For some reason, the railway company didn't approve of this and started putting little holes in the shovels to stop them cooking, because they were cooking fried eggs uh, on the trains. So that, that's, that's absolutely entirely believable. I'm quite, quite sure they would have cooked them because of course, you can't go down a coal mine with an ordinary lamp because of the coal gas, the methane gas that explodes. But the tin mines don't have that. Tin mines don't have dangerous gas. So the miners did go down with candles, uh, the candles that stuck into their, their helmets uh, and little lamps and things. Absolutely, they would have, I'm quite sure they would have heated things up. With them. Yeah, 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 very believable. There is also a story that the crust on the pasty, which is crimped, was 
use to hold the pasty in your hand. And because in Cornwall anyway, there's a lot of arsenic in some of the mines. And so they would, they would not eat the crust. They would just hold the, the crimped area and eat the rest. Could be. It was originally thought, you know, the crimp part of it was where the miner would hold the pasty because they, they were mining lead and stuff like that. And so they would eat the product and throw that crimp bit away. That's what it was designed for. And the story is that their hands were filthy, not just with tin, uh, but also with arsenic, which occurs down the mines. So the reason for the, the, curl, the big squidged round edge on the Cornish pasty is that they could hold that to stop getting too much arsenic um, on their pasty and then throw the um, crust away when they'd finished the rest of it. And then when you finish your meal, you throw away what we call the crimp, which is the, the twisted bit on the, on the side, because you've contaminated that with your hands. Miners very often come into contact with things like arsenic, so you don't want to be eating that. So they would throw the crimp away and just eat the contents of the pasty. And it was developed in Australia with a crimp on the top because the miners would go down in the mines with their pasty. Obviously, there were a lot of, I'm going to say, poisonous and not very nice things, very dirty hands, very dirty conditions underground. So they actually held the pasty by the crimp that was on the top of the pasty and then they threw away the crimp, which is a crying shame because the crimp actually is the best part, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, may maybe if you're really, really good at crimping the crust, it would be possible to hold it by the crust, but I sure couldn't hold one. I mean, if I were making them, you sure couldn't hold it that way. So, uh, but then what can I say? Yes. And, and again, um, people who don't know any better say that uh, the crimp was put on the Cornish pasty so that the miners could hold it and eat it sideways. And they would leave the crimp because the dirt from the mine would have gone on that and they wouldn't want to eat it. But I, I have to assure you that the miners were so poor uh, and so hungry that they wouldn't have wasted one bit of that. They would have eaten the whole lot. When you were mining deep underground and you're eating your pasty, the crimped pasty, the hard crust towards one end, you're meant to leave a little shelf on the, the tunnel that you're in and you leave it for the tommy muckers. And if you don't, they'll make all sorts of mischief. The tunnel's roof could cave in, there could be an inflood of water. That caused you all, all sorts of trouble. So you've got to leave your little bit of crust behind, and they love that. The knockers are a, um, a race of small people that live in the mines, and they, they're kind of like bad pixies. Tommy knockers are very little people. They're cousins of the piskies you find the leprechauns you find in Ireland, but they live underground in the mines. Now, Tommy Muckers are, like leprechauns, very impish people. They like causing trouble occasionally. So if anything bad happened down the mine, then they it would be attributable to them. And you can imagine when you're underground, you can quite often hear that knocking sound. So it's grown up around that. And the way they would appease them was to throw them some of their pasty. So there's kind of that other use for your crimp that you don't want to eat is to, to give it to the knockers because then uh, actually no accidents will befall you. And the crusts were eaten by the knockers 
who are the magical uh, goblins who live down the tin mines. There are also stories that, that the miners were quite superstitious. They had stories about what they called Tommy knockers, who were those spirits in the mines, and that they would leave parts of their crust for, for the knockers. And they might have done that. I have no idea. I think the, the bit of pasty would have disappeared, but that's because there were probably rats and mice underground as well. However, I'm fairly confident that this his story is just drivel, really, from start to finish. Um, I mean, why would you throw the most delicious bit away? And actually, if we're perfectly honest, I've been down a college tin mine and I've never seen any goblins, so there you go. I think they used to put them in cloth bags because they, you could hold them that way. What is wonderful is, and for our festival, we actually serve for our VIPs or at any official functions, we actually serve our pasty in a crib bag. Because, of course, now you go to the shop and you would buy a pasty and they pop it in a paper bag and off you go. Um, 1850s and 60s, there weren't many paper bags around. <laughs> so the women would sew a crib bag out of calico or whatever fabric that they would have. And they would heat the pasty and pop it into a crib bag, which would then be put into their lunch pail or whatever they took with them underground and then of course they would eat the pasty in the crib bag pop the crib bag back into their little pail and then that would be washed every Monday which was washing day so we have identified that as a a unique opportunity to um, eat a pasty in a different way. (laughs) Certainly we've actually got some photographs from the same sort of period of miners going down the tin mines in Cornwall and they have their pasties in little bags, little paper or cloth bags. In 1850, at the World Exhibition uh, that Queen Victoria's husband put on Prince Albert, the first one they ever had, there was a competition there for a new product that was just invented. It was called a paper bag. And they said, come up with a use for this paper bag. What can we use it for? And people rocked up bringing water in it. Some people bought hot coals in it. And you think, this is just ridiculous. And one woman turned up, she bought her husband's lunch in it, his pasties for lunch, won the competition. It was something like £10, which was huge back then, absolutely huge. It started one of the first takeaway foods ever, corner stalls popping up with pasties in a paper bag. And I think when they came to this country, to this area, um, they became very popular, primarily probably because they were so portable. You know, you could carry them anywhere. You still can. It was the ideal all-rounder, really, for them. And it's back before the days of Vegemite sandwiches, which, of course, is now the... (laughs) I'm Mike Kiernan. I'm from the Cornish Global Migration Programme, based in Cornwall, and you're listening to the local fairy tale of the past. Pasty please of people to keep away from. Now, I'll have to warn you, and this is probably really worth recording, I'll have to warn you and your listeners that later on in this recording, I am going to publicly commit a crime in front of you. But I'm going to have to ask you to all keep very quiet about it. But this is something we can look forward to. Not, not obviously not look forward to, but this is something we can find out about shortly so in order for it to be called a cornish pasty it has to have been made in cornwall that's the rule you can't make it somewhere else and call it a cornish pasty the cornish pasty it has the same accreditation 
as French champagne now. In other words, you can only call it a Cornish pasty if it is made and produced in Cornwall. Um, that sounds a bit fanciful, but uh, that's how strongly we feel about it. And there's definitely a list of things that has to have that make it a Cornish pasty. Um, it's got to be, have the right sort of pastry to make it and the right sort of ingredients. And it's got to be constructed in the right manner. The crimping around the edges must be at the size and not across the top. So it's got a what they call a protected status. So there's lots of food that actually, you know, that it's like cheddar cheese has to come from cheddar and champagne in France has to come from the champagne area of France. Otherwise, they can't call it champagne. So it's exactly the same thing. They've applied for what they call a, a protected status for, for the name of the Cornish pasty. So it has to be from Cornwall and it has to meet the criteria. In the UK, in the United Kingdom, it is what is called as a prescribed food. So if you want to commercially make a Cornish pasty, it has to satisfy certain government regulations. And this is where I'm going to warn you again, that very shortly, I'm actually going to be committing crime live. Fortunately, our village is a long way away from the nearest police station, and we're probably reasonably safe. But I, I'm warning you in advance for anybody concerned about the crime wave spreading across rural Derbyshire that you need to probably turn off now. Recently being incorporated into British law, it used to be European law, but since we left the European Union, the British government has now adopted the law of certain designated foods into our law and the Cornish pasty, thank goodness to some extent. Now this is where I have to warn you, uh, the crime is about to occur because I wanted to bring you a Cornish pasty. Now, I live in the north of England and Cornwall is a long way away. You may only think England is a little island, but if I want to go to Cornwall, it's right there at the end of this peninsula. It's, uh, it's an overnight, you get the overnight train, you get a sleeper train to go to Cornwall. It takes eight hours uh, on the train or you'd, you'd fly there. It's you know, just too far to go by car. However, the Cornish send unbaked pasties. They have got this special technique of crimping the edges and you can have them delivered un unbaked throughout England. Our local pub gets pasties sent up from Cornwall and in our nearest town, uh, which is Bakewell, uh, supposedly the spiritual home of baking and the famous town for making Bakewell tarts, but that's a whole other podcast, Bakewell tarts. Uh, in the spiritual home of baking, uh, there is a Cornish pasty shop, which every morning has uncooked pasties trucked up overnight from Cornwall, and they bake them there, and they are fabulous. And I went there, and I hope you're being very, very impressed with me, because I went there in the pouring rain today. It's absolutely torrential rain, and they were closed by the time I got there. They shut early because of the weather. So I'm afraid I haven't got a real Cornish pasty for you. Don't forget the Cornish Pasty Association. They're absolutely brilliant people. But they are a commercial organisation. They're, they're made up of commercial concerns here in Cornwall who commercially produce an awful lot, thousands, perhaps millions of pastors every year. And um, as a commercial organisation, they are perhaps worse than the pasty police in that they follow rigidly the 
official recipe laid down by the designated food product. I think a little tiny local bakery who just sells to, you know, half a dozen shops around about King, you know, isn't going to get away with it. But if a national bakery chain tried to sell Cornish pasties that weren't made in Cornwall, they would be in court in no time. Uh, the Cornish are understandably very, remember how nationalistic the Cornish were, they'd be invading England, which they've done before, actually. They've done twice Cornwall's tried to invade England and take over, not been entirely successful, but they'd be there again, fueled by pasties. Although, of course, if you're a private person, your mum or your grandmother makes a pasty, then she can call it a Cornish pasty and she won't go to jail because she's not selling it commercially. But if you made a lot and sold them commercially, She'd be breaking the law. People have their preferences for the, the there's, there's, a, there's a homemade pasty and there's what we call a Borton pasty, which is from a shop. And you have to be very selective in which shop you go to. And some have a better reputation than others. And there's one big English firm um, which makes pasties or what it calls Cornish pasties. And they are um, condemned and rejected by every Cornish person. And if, if you want to be offensive to someone, you use the name of that firm, which I won't do on your podcast because I might get a legal challenge from someone. Now, this is where I commit a crime because in England, Cornish pasties are by law only allowed to be made in Cornwall. It is illegal to make Cornish pasties outside Cornwall. I mean, you can make pasties or you're not allowed to call them Cornish pasties unless they've actually been made in Cornwall. Anyway, now... I hope nobody's listening to us, Ellie, because I went to the local village shop in Winster and I purchased a Cornish pasty, which I'm afraid has not been made in Cornwall. It's been made in Bakewell, which for all its fame in baking is hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Cornwall. And here is this illegal criminal imitation Cornish pasty. And I can tell you it's a criminal, illegal Cornish pasty because the law about Cornish pasties says that the pastry has to be crimped together on the side. And this one has been crimped together on the top. So it's wrong. And the pastry simply squeezing the edges of the pastry together. And that's all they've done here will not do. It has to be rolled and squeezed around in a, in a mysterious, special way that only Cornish people know. On top of which, to try and get the crunchy effect, they've glazed the pastry with egg or something. So that's wrong. That's a completely illegal Cornish pasty. And I, I really should be handing this in to the police, um, which would <laughs> be a rather fun thing to do, wouldn't it? I don't know what they would, I'm not quite sure what they'd do about it. But there you go. Um, <laughs> shall we have a look what's inside our illegal imitation pasty? Oh, fancy that. It's minced meat. <laughs> so that, that is just absolutely wrong. That's foul, perverted and grossly immoral. Because, of course, when you say minced meat, you mean, well, you know, stuff, don't you really? Uh, if it's meat in chunks, you've got a fair idea that it's actually made of animal, whereas the mince bits, I don't know, are bottoms or something that have been left over, unpleasant parts and things. So minced absolutely out of the question. So I hope this podcast isn't going to be heard too far around. I won't have nothing on my bill because of the Ill illegal, illegal Cornish pasties from Derbyshire. I don't know if I can bring myself to eat this imitation pasty. It's just not right.
on lots so many levels. English law, British law, Polish law, cannot be enforced in your countries. So if you want to make a Cornish pasty and sell it as a Cornish pasty, you won't be prosecuted. But I'm, I'm not that sort of vigorous about how you define it. In the old days, I'm sure hundreds of years ago, the Cornish people, a place of sometimes extreme poverty and hunger, compare it to some respect is Ireland in the 1850s, the great hunger period, um, you would have used anything at hand to make your pasting. They obviously had to use whatever ingredients were seasonal and were available to them because it was very, very tough times um, and Australia is very dry, which is something that they weren't used to. There was no running water. Um, we don't have any streams, rivers, creeks, anything like that. So it was they were basically reliant on um, water in the ground or rainwater. So to grow gardens was very, very difficult for them. So obviously they had to use whatever vegetables that were in season or that they could grow or butter. And obviously any meat that they could source in the area, which, yeah, so sometimes it was a vegetarian pasty. Sometimes it did have meat. Sometimes it did have pumpkin and sometimes it didn't. <laughs> they took it. They adapted it. They... <laughs> When you look at a Mexican pasty, it looks exactly the same as a Cornish pasty, but they, they tend to make them much smaller. But it, apart from that, it looks exactly the same. The ingredients are very much the same. There's only two main differences. They don't grow swede in Mexico. So there's no orange swede in their pasty. And of course they have to put in some chili. So it's it's got a bit of spice to it. Mm -hmm. Puritanical note, I might say that the pastry they use is not quite right, but then flour comes from all sorts of different things. They're at a very high altitude, and also the potatoes that are put into it, the key potatoes, are slightly different, but you get so many different varieties of potatoes. And how do you do grow a, a correct? Cornish variety of potatoes at 10,000 feet up in the Sierra Madras in Mexico, I think. <laughs> you can only have Cornish pasties in Cornwall. That's the only place you can call pasties Cornish pasties. So, you know, some of the, a lot of places in the UP have, they're just called Uper pasty, UP pasty, that kind of thing. Or I guess all throughout Michigan, that's kind of what the uh, general version's called. I don't particularly get worked up about, I think, what's called these days cultural appropriation so if people want to make it how they want let them do so and let me when i visit their shop complain michigan the upper peninsula is, is definitely the most uh i don't know most passy shops per capita easily in the world outside of cornwall i'd say i don't know the fact on that but i just assume <laughs> um just like the UP is not a big place and there's so many pasty places so like that has to make sense so but in Camborne itself there would be oh I don't know up to 10 pasty shops yes easily my family roots come from Cornwall a place called Red Roof well known for Cornish pasties and I had a daughter who was studying over there a few years back and she said 10 k's out of Red Roof she went to see the place she said you could smell pasties it, it was that that strong it was, it was the staple diet 
over there. So here's the Cornish pasty and the Mexicans embrace it. And that little town, which is the same size as Redruth, it's got about 15,000 people, has more pasty shops than we have here in Redruth by a, a country mile. Like if you go to the UP, um, it's just kind of, it's even different than the lower peninsula of Michigan. It's just kind of a different place. <laughs> Like you're driving along, pretty much any store will have a pasty. That's just kind of ingrained the pasty is for the Upper Peninsula. Um, like gas stations, you find a liquor store or whatever. They're going to have, oh, they're going to advertise. We got hot pasties here. And obviously the pastyguy.com is a useful resource. I, I think I've reviewed maybe about 90 over the last few years. And it's just anytime I go up to the UP, if you go any like if you go down any back road or road I haven't been or something, it's just like, oh, here's another place with a pasty. Oh, there's another place. Oh, got to add it to the list. And it's just like it's kind of nonstop something I, I didn't realize uh, beforehand uh, that there's so many places. So, you know, I'm like I said, 90 places. That's that's a lot. And uh, I'm, I don't it feels like I like I've only scratched the surface because there's there's probably a lot more I still have to get to in the UP. <laughs> But yeah, the main goal is just to kind of get the word out about all these pasty places, which one is, you know, the best one where to go, that kind of thing. So we looked at taste, crust, presentation, the actual pasty shop, and then if we'd actually come back for a pasty. So all those things are kind of connected, but they're all kind of their own thing. In the national competition, what are the judges looking for? So there's certain criteria there. I think there's three or four sections that you have to get through to get, and get a certain number of points before you go on any further to be judged again. So they look at the general appearance of the product. Now, appearance is always what sells the product, whether you're buying a car, um, whether you're buying a, a new rug for your lounge, or you're buying a pasty. It's the appearance of, of the product that's really going to sell it to you. So we always work on, on making sure the thing is the best-looking product you can get. And a number of times, we've got 10 out of 10 for our general appearance, which means everybody else is playing catch up to you if you can you know score big there then they go for the pastry the lift on the pastry we worked on that for three years to get the pastry exactly where we wanted it with this if you like a concertina effect uh, with the lift on the pastry and yet there's not a lot of pastry there it looks like there's a lot but it's very light and very flaky and then they'll they'll talk about the color the even evenness of the bake and that so there's the three things they, they look at and there's been several times we've got perfect scores for those before they even decide to heat one up and cut it and look at the inside texture and, and all that sort of stuff. So, like, I mean, they get thousands of entries into this. A lot of people don't make it past those first three stages. Like I said, you've got to get a certain number of points. And if you don't get it, sorry, you don't go any further. This is the hard part for us. You know, we, we suffer a tyranny of distance here. We make it here in Adelaide in South Australia. And we have to transport it to either Melbourne or Sydney on the eastern seaboard, which by flight is about two hours. Now, I've been to these competitions where people have walked in with a plate of product that was still hot. They have made it in their bakery and they're dropping it off straight out of the oven. And here I am, I've got to make it, cool it to near freezing and get it interstate. And I studied the competition for a couple of years before we entered it just to see, and we sent product interstate to people we knew then just say, look, how did this turn up when it got there? And so that by the time we were ready to enter, we had it down pat how we were going to do it. And I, I can still remember the year that we won it. 
there were three people who were behind me who had plates of product that were still scalding hot. And we, we bought our product nearly frozen, half frozen over there. And the Orange Spot Bakery won by a country mile, I might add, as well. And we haven't looked back. Um, it's interesting to see the way the competition's going. It used to be just a traditional pasty would win it. Now they've got a gluten-free vegan pasty. I think won it last year. And I think, you know, what's it coming to? And that's a, it was all, all to do with just the traditional pasty originally. So, but we'll, we'll, we'll be back. We'll, we'll be back. Don't worry. Cause we've, we've tweaked it a few more times since then, uh, over the last couple of years. And, uh, I think what we're doing now is better than anything we've done before. So we'll be there with guns blazing. But the true Cornish pasty is just so different. So, so different. So it wasn't so much a realization that other people don't have them, the realization that this place does have them. Thank you. I'm Deborah Reeve, Redrith Town Councillor for Redrith Central, and you're listening to the local fairy tale of the pasty. So they have a festival in Real de Monte to celebrate the pasty, and we have a festival in Redrith to celebrate the pasty, which was instigated by a Cornish gentleman who was a miner, and he happened to go out to Mexico and he made lots of friends there. And when he realised that all of these connections existed, he said, we should have a festival. We should have one in Mexico and we should have one in Cornwall and we should kind of do this whole thing. So Pasty Fest started in 2004, I believe. Of course, we missed 2020 with COVID. Main Street County, the organization that hosts the event, is a nonprofit. It's um, focused on economic development in our community here in Calumet. And they were looking for, you know, a fun event that was unique, that would draw people to the community and kind of highlight something unique about our area. So they came up with Pasty Fest, and I believe one of the organizers has a pasty company as well, so that certainly makes sense. Canuic means Cornish, and Lawenda is happiness. So it's a happy time to be Cornish, so it's celebrating our Cornishness. The first festival um, in the area was 1973, and it was actually introduced in our area not only to celebrate our heritage, but as an opportunity to bring more tourists and visitors to our area. It takes place in the three towns of Kadena, Moonta and Wallaroo, um, which are all known, and the area is known as the Copper Triangle because the three towns actually make a triangle on the map, if you have a look at it. Three towns are about 15, 20 minutes apart from each other, so it's quite easy to move around the three towns. So when you come to the Redrith Festival, you will find... The whole town is in fiesta mode, so all the flags are out, the bunting's up, there's loads of street stalls, there's street food, there's people selling uh, craft-related items. There's a very international theme, uh, so it's not just about Mexico, uh, it's also about all the other places that miners have gone to around the world, so we try to incorporate some of that. We hold it right in our downtown. We have a very historic downtown here in Calumet. We're part of a national historic park, and so it's a lot of big old sandstone buildings, a really kind of tight, small downtown. So we have a very kind of traditional feel, and we set up street vendors. We have a little car show. You can come and buy a pasty. The Mexico festival, those guys know how to do a festival. I mean, they just go all out. It's a sight to behold for three days. They close the streets. You can't drive down them. There's marquees everywhere. There's morning till night, 
food and tequila and music and everything is just going on there. It attracts over the three days approximately 100,000 people and they all turn up in Wales and wanted to celebrate the Cornish pasty. So it's a, a really brilliant spectacle. It culminates in weekend where our major events are, but in the week leading up to that, we have a lot of other smaller events that just help support the arts, the culture, the history, the language, the music. There's lots of street music. We have lots of music that comes from different places. We always like to have a mariachi band because it brings such a Mexican flavour to the festival and everyone loves them. They walk around the streets all day playing music and everybody thinks that's great. And then we've got brass bands here, which of course are very traditional in this country. So they're playing. We have competitions. So the eating competition, they set up a load of tables outside uh, one of the pasty shops and the streets closed. There's no traffic and they set up all the tables, all the potters sit down and the pasty maker has been told to make the biggest pasty that he can fit on a plate and everybody gets given the same thing and they get timed with the stopwatch and it's who can eat it the quickest essentially. And you can imagine there's loads of people stood around cheering them on, trying to get them to be the first one to finish and all of that. So that's a really fun. You can join a pasty eating competition to see how many you can eat in five minutes. I think it's a really fast road to heartburn, probably. And those pasties are I, like eight ounces. They're bigger. It's a lot of food. <laughs> it's a lot of food, but it is actually really hilarious. And a lot of people have a great time with that. The pasty bake off. The problem is it, is it has become highly competitive. Everybody is wanting to participate. So this uh, last festival, we increased the number of participants and yeah, it, it is usually the VIPs and the sponsors because we want to acknowledge their support and their efforts in, in ensuring that the festival happens. So, yes, they have to make it from scratch. So they're given the recipe, which really doesn't tell them a great deal. They're given all of the raw ingredients and then they are charged with the challenge of making a pasty and then trying to crimp it as well. They've got about 45 minutes to make it. So it's quite a short time. That's not cooked. That's just making the pasty. So, yeah, by the time they get their head around it and they get their pastry made and they chop their vegetables and mix it all together and then actually make a pasty, yeah, it's um, it's um, challenging. <laughs> we do try to make it easier because often it's people that have never made a pasty before. And so we do get student support from the local, because it's held in Moonta, we actually partner with the Moonta Area School and their senior students who obviously have practiced and, and know a little bit about making a pasty actually assist. So they do get an assistant. It was a lot of fun with a lot of bantering and you really do have to watch them with sharp implements. Fraser, who is our local member, actually did it two years ago and cut his finger and did the same thing again this year. So um, <laughs> we're just going to have band-aids on hand in future if he's in. <laughs> But it's a lot of fun and it brings a great crowd. Then it is judged by our patron for the Cornish Festival, so the lovely Diana Hancock. Uh, she and her husband, who's since passed, have been patrons of the festival since 1973. And the lovely Diana actually could give great insight into what a Cornish pasty should have in it and should look like. And so she was actually our judge for the event. But it's also a bit of a popular. 
popularity thing too because obviously <laughs> the pasties don't always end up really looking like something you'd want to eat. <laughs> Who can crimp a pasty the quickest and doing it quickly is, you know, if you if we you and I tried to do it, we'd be there being very painstaking. But if you're a professional pasty maker, you can do it like lightning. So they they try and find the person that can crimp the pasty the fastest. And a lot of Cornish people are making their own pasties. They might not be professional pasty makers, but my goodness, they're quick and they can turn a crimp really quickly. And then we also have a bake-off event where it's commercial bakers that participate. So we use that as a fundraiser for our organization and they bake mini pasties or sliders, we call them either way. And each person so you can buy a kit i think this year it was 20 bucks for the kit you get five four ounce pasties so one from each vendor and then we put different like color or style of toothpick in each one so say the sumi restaurant is a blue sword and slim's cafe is a red umbrella or something and then you taste each one you know, buy your kit, taste each one, and, and you vote by returning that toothpick of your favorite pasty to our booth. And we sell a hundred of those kits in about 45 minutes. They are gone. So people are really, they're really into it. You can go and make your own pasty. So there's a tent set aside. So you can go in there and you can have a go. And we put it in the oven for you, give you a number. And you come back and pick it up later. And that's the pasty that you made with pasty making demonstrations. We do have lovely community members that do offer throughout this tool some opportunities to have Cornish pasty baking lessons. So people can actually go along and actually learn how to make a Cornish pasty and, and make one themselves. So we do have a pasty fest mascot, Cousin Jack. The Cornish were referred to as the Cousin Jacks and the Cousin Jennies. It was a giant pasty. The pasty fest at one time had the parade was led by Toivo, the walking pasty. Now Toivo is a Finnish name. And one year... Several people said, you know, why are you calling this the pasty by a Finnish, somebody leading the pasty as, as being a Finnish name? So they did a, a contest and asked people to vote on this. And you had to pay a dollar a vote. The walking pasty is now Cousin Jack the walking pasty. <laughs> and then we also have some other costumes like a a giant carrot, the giant rutabaga, onion, sack of potatoes. This year we started, and this is something that, but we copied it from a, a farmer's market group in the state of New York who has, I, I think they call it the International Rutabaga Curling Championships or something. And they have done a really great job of kind of poking fun at themselves and just creating what looks like an awesome event. We happen to have a, a volunteer and, and friend of our family who's from that area originally and is also a curler we have the only i believe natural ice curling rink in the country in calumet so we do have a active curling club and the copper country curling club then sponsored the first ever you know pasty fest rutabaga curling and rutabaga curling the international rutabaga curling uh, rules we're trying to abide by those and learn a little bit from that group so we set it up this year as a kind of as a demo so we didn't actually do with adults a tournament we just did it as an expo like they did one round of curling each person got a turn so the costumes versus the curlers played rutabaga curling this year 
and it was really hilarious. And actually, the guy and our cousin, our cousin Jack, won. He took the cake. Uh, you can barely see out of that costume, so I'm thinking there was maybe a little bit of luck involved, but they won. And then we did a tournament for kids as well. So hopefully next year we'll turn that into, you know, an actual tournament where there would be rounds where, you know, um, all the adults play and then, you know, you pick the winner of each round and they would play against each other, and, you know, like a tournament, right? So we hope that it catches on. It was really fun and a great thing for, I mean, you got to have some kind of something. You have to throw a rotabaga or something at a passing fest, it seems like. In recent years, when I say recent years, and jump forward to 1990s, middle 1990s, when a party of Cornish people from Cornwall and some from Canada visited Patuka in search of the stories and descendants' cousins living in Mexico. The local authorities took this visit on board and one thing they did do at one official reception was to bake a Cornish pasty. But being Mexican, I absolutely love the wonderful imagination they have. They did one on a huge baking tray. That baking tray was about six foot long, so the pasty was approximately six foot long. And it was divided up and shared with everybody at the reception. And that tradition has carried on. So this is the longest pasty in the world, and they make it in the square in front of all the people that live and all the visitors that come. So they've made this enormous, great long metal pasty tray, and all the pasty makers in the town donate pastry and the filling, and they dump the pastry out of these massive great buckets. I mean, it is enormous onto the tray and all the pasty makers gather behind the tray and they roll the pastry out into this enormous long pasty and then they bring all of the filling and tip it in the middle and then fold the pasty over and crimp the end and then they pick it up on their shoulders I mean the thing is like 20 foot more long and they carry it through the streets with a band playing all the way down to the bakery that's got this enormous oven and they literally put the thing in the oven they all sit outside and listen to music and drink tequila and the people that own the bakery come around with you know bread and things to eat wait for it to be cooked and then when it comes out they have put the hot tray on a wooden board and then they carry it back and into the main square and then they cut it up into loads and loads and loads of pieces and give it out to everybody. And people queue up for hours to get a bit of the plastic. So, yeah, the three towns come alive every two years. On a normal year, we would expect about 40,000 visitors over that week. I don't do attendance counts, but I do a pasty count. That's about the easiest thing I've found. So this year we sold just under 3,000 pasties, which was growth for us of about 750 pasties from 2019. So the event is really growing. So we usually get, um, obviously, it's mainly people who are quite local, but, but we live in a, an area where there's a lot of tourism, so we get a lot of visitors. And we would certainly see people that come from further away that have come to visit, and we were always looking to grow that. In terms of visitor numbers, it's certainly in the thousands. It, you know, it's not uh, 20 people stood around looking at a pasty. 
um, it's thousands of people that are coming to enjoy the spectacle. I think we can learn a lot from our Mexican cousins. I think they average about 10,000 people a day to their festival. So over a weekend, they're seeing an awful lot of traffic or rather not traffic because you can't park anywhere. <laughs> it's just a great little fun downtown event. It is over and gone in four hours and I'm only exhausted for about a month after. I'm Lynn Spoonwing from the Kernowick Gwenda Cornish Festival and you're listening to the local fairy tale of the pasty. Cornish are terribly resilient people. They were quite amazing people. Very hardworking, very, um, I'm, I'm going to say religious, but very passionate and very um, involved with their families and their community with really lovely ethics. And education was also a really important part of their lives. So it was identified that even the young boys, that were the picky boys at sort of age 12 that were working on the tables and sorting the ore that came up from, from underground, they actually were in um, to get their wage every week. They did have to attend evening school. So they would work the day on the picky tables and then they would have to go to school in the evening to actually get their wage uh, at the end of the week. And a lot of the money that was raised through the mines was invested in education. So the University of Adelaide actually was established on money from, from the Cornish mines in our area. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing the principles and the values that they actually brought with them from Cornwall. And as I said, family was such an important part of that. And obviously feeding the family, which is where the pasty came into it. <laughs> Every family around here has pasties and has always had them. And I suppose my my earliest memories of, of having them and eating them would be the ones my, my mother made. And uh, she would alert them from her mother and so on back into the distant past uh, whenever pasties started. You know, I would imagine that this is the case for a lot of people. With a lot of different, but the best pasty in my head is always my mother's pasty. I, I've been baking for over 50 years now, but um, my mum always made pasties at home, which I still reckon I can't equal. You know, mum's cooking is always the best. Only two people can make a good, proper Cornish pasty. Obviously, the first one is my wife, and the second one must be my mother. So, yeah, it's been in our family. Like, my mother's father was from Cornish stock. So yeah, we would go right back to the early history of Moonta. And same with my my grandmother's, my mum's mum, mum. She's actually, her family's actually from Devon, but he was a miner as well, her father. So going, going back a few generations. The copper mines actually closed down in 1922. So a lot of people moved away, but Moonta still existed, you know, but both schools went till 1978, so they still had students there. My mum went to Moona Mines Primary School. She was born in 1930. Now, we have been nationally heritage listed, and we're trying for world heritage listing because we're quite unique in the mining. And we're very, very lucky that in about the 1960s, they decided to preserve our infrastructure. Val del Monte, when they're silver mines, in Mexico, particularly in that niche, closed in the 1990s. It left the town very similar to many towns in Cornwall when the mines closed, totally devastated. No employment, nothing. But 
they did have this memory of the Cornish pasty. And um, as a result, they decided because mining no longer, they were going to turn the delightful town, a little bit dilapidated, into a tourist centre of Pueblo Magica, as they call them in Mexico. And they thought that a feature of this would be the Cornish pasty. The first Cornish pasty museum in the world is not in Cornwall, it's in Mexico. So the museum was started by two brothers who own a pasty emporium, really. I think the elder brother started off when he was a teenager, helping the family out with their daily you know income making by having a basket full of pasties he'd come from home from school and he'd take the basket of pasties out onto the street and sell them to people and that's how he started and he now has over 50 pasty shops in Mexico and several restaurants and a hotel and so on and so on so the guy has has really done an amazing job and actually just before COVID, he had just finished three years as the as the mayor of Real de Monte. So he'd gone, you know, the whole way, really. And he and his brother wanted this legacy for the town. So they um, had a piece of land and they built this museum. And when you go, you get the whole story of the Cornish migration to Mexico and you get the history of the pasty. And then you have the opportunity to go and make your own pasty. I think it was three, four years ago, the Duke of Cornwall, otherwise known as the Prince of Wales, the heir to the village friend, he and Camilla visited Real de Monte on an official trip. And after paying their respects at a wonderful cemetery in Real de Monte, which is an absolutely unique place, in the world, in my opinion, but certainly in Mexico, which is a cemetery devoted to the Cornish. But after that, that was his first stop. Then he was taken down to the Pasty Museum, where he and Camilla were paraded into this place, and they both had to make pastas, which for the Duke of Cornwall, I find they did a fairly good job. But it was, it was wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Real de Monte in Hidalgo in Mexico is the only place in Mexico that's twinned with somewhere in the UK. So we're the, uh, it's the only Mexican-English twinning. And the Mexican Twinning Association and the Cornwall Twinning Association send people to the opposite Twinning Association to celebrate their pasty festivals. So we go out to Mexico and the people from Mexico come to us and we all have this most amazing celebration. It's brilliant. We ended up forming a group called the Kiwana Kiranuik, which Kiranuik is the name for the Cornish language or Cornish nationality. And so we called ourselves the Kiwana Kiranuik. And we started in 1992. Um, I guess 94, we were fortunate in that a male choir came. I used to belong to a, a male voice choir. Uh, I still do sing uh, in a little group, but um, uh, we, we used to quite often go to Europe on tours and so on, and certainly in this country. And at one stage, we were invited to go to the Upper Peninsula, to Calumet, for a gathering which was called the Gathering of the Cornish Cousins, 
for all people of Cornish descent right across the United States. Um, but from there, and our contacts with um, Jean Ellis, and the name Ellis is from this area, Jean's family come from here, we started to develop a relationship. And we were already twinned with a, a town in Brittany in France, because I don't know if you know, but there's a Cornish language, which is not English, it's a, it's a Celtic language. And it's very, very similar to the, the language they still speak in Brittany. So we were twinned with a town in Brittany and we thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if we also twinned with a, a town which had a, a quite a large um, percentage of people of Cornish descent and Calumet was that place. Um, we returned again in 2007 and cemented that friendship. So I remember growing up, you know, that was a special thing that my mom would make um, that definitely felt like, wow, this is something in my mind from Calumet, right? because that's where she was raised and I knew that. So that this was always a, a Calumet thing and a UP thing and part of her heritage was the pasty. Probably in my early teens, I went in, into the Western States of Australia and we were driving over. It's a hell of a, a long drive, a couple of thousand Ks. And like I said, we, we were, I was in my early teens and my brothers were you know similar age and that mum and dad driving. And we, we pulled up somewhere and we... They said, oh, what do you want? This is before McDonald's and all that, mind you. And Dad said, you know, what do you want? And we, we just thought, oh, I can grab us a pasty or something like that. They never had them. They don't, don't sell them there. And it, 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 it kind of just threw us all a bit. What do you mean you haven't got a pasty? No, no, don't sell pasties here. It was just part of my childhood. So it's never struck me, well, maybe now, but it's never really struck me as being um, unique or anything. You know, it's just like anything, like bread and butter. And then, of course, as we've gotten older, my siblings and I, uh, anytime there's a family, you know, if we have a family get together in the summer or whenever it might be, wherever it might be as well, we will be making pasties for sure. What is lovely is that my mother-in-law has been able to actually hand that on and my daughter has actually, and son have made pasties with Nana. And I'm sure that my grandchildren will make them with Nana Barb as well. And they will learn how to do the crimp. So it won't be lost. Um, it'll still be a family tradition, but just not something I can do. Which basically it is my total amazement of how such a, a rather simple item of fast food almost has become a global symbol for the calling. And that is the local fairy tale of the pasty. More information about the pasty and the pasty tale tellers can be found at local fairy, F-A-R-E-Y, tales, T-A-L-E-S dot com. And be sure to follow Local Fairy Tales Podcast on Facebook and Instagram to share your tales about the pasty or other local fair. And if you don't know much about your local fair, ask. There are tale tellers everywhere. Pastry Pockets filled with gratitude to Nicholas Davey, Jean Ellis, Glenn Hughes, Mike Kiernan, David Oates, The Pasty Guy, Marilyn Philby, Leah Polzine, Deborah Reeve, and Lynn Sperling for sharing their time and pasty knowledge. Concept, production, and editing by me, Nora Vetter. Music by Anisha Thomas. And artwork by Jonathan Reich. This episode completes Season 1 of Local Fairy Tales. 
Be sure to subscribe at your favorite place to stream podcasts to hear the second season in 2022.